want to again welcome you to Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, especially if you're visiting with us this morning, whether you're a first-time or a regular uh, visitor. We are so glad you're here. You're our guest, and we'd love to get to know you, so welcome. Uh, If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to our text, which is found in Genesis chapter 46, beginning in verse 28, and there's also a copy printed in your order of worship. This morning, we're continuing with our study of the life of Joseph, and we come this morning to what really should be the end of the story. It really should be all over after this. By the end of our passage, all of the major plot lines uh, that have carried along this story for 10 chapters, they've all been resolved. If you think of the story of Joseph like a plane that's been flying around in the air for 10 chapters, um, our passage this morning is where the plane comes into land. It finally comes into land. Joseph and his family are reunited, and Israel and Egypt are both saved from extinction by this, uh, or through this famine by the wise rule of Joseph. By the time we get to chapter 47, verse 28, the story's over. The plane has landed, the engines are off, and it's coasting down the runway. The sign to unbuckle your seatbelts has just come on. The, the story's over. Um, at least that's what it feels like. That's what it feels like until Jacob, at the end of our passage, crawls into the cockpit, puts his hand on the throttle of the plane that we just thought had landed, and throws the afterburners on, and the story goes back up in the air. What we thought was a plane coming down to land is really just a touch and go. By the end of our passage, you wouldn't blame any of the Israelites um, who were there for looking around at their lives and saying, finally, finally, we're home. We've made it. This is it. (laughs) Finally, we're comfortable. We own land. We've got possessions. We're here. We've got a future here. We're settled. This has got to be home. But then in the last three verses, Jacob comes back into the story and he says, no, we're not. We're not home yet. We thought that the plane had landed, but then it takes back off again. We, we thought that all of the tension in the story, that if you've been here for the last few weeks, that we've been living with week after week, we thought all that tension was resolved. But, but what we're going to see this morning is that the story introduces a deeper tension that doesn't get resolved. And it doesn't get resolved by the end of the book of Genesis. It doesn't get resolved by the end of the book of Exodus. In fact, the further we go through the Old Testament, the deeper this tension goes and the more we feel this tension building and growing and it, and it actually doesn't get resolved. And that tension, what is it? What is that tension that we're introduced to here? It's the tension that God's people have felt ever since Genesis 3 and all the way till right now, October the 27th, 2019. It's the tension between settling and sojourning. The tension between settling and sojourning, between, between being rooted in a place and restless for the place that you're not yet. It's the tension that we feel of being made for home and not being home yet. It's the tension of living in a world that we're not of. Settling and sojourning. If you're not familiar with that word to sojourn, uh, it just means to be a traveler to be a pilgrim, to be a guest, to be someone who ultimately knows that he doesn't 
belong. And our passage this morning is it's about this tension, this tension between settling and sojourning. And that means, brothers and sisters and friends, that, that this passage is for you. Because the Christian life is lived right here in this tension. In this tension that's often expressed as the ache of our hearts for a home that we don't have yet. That's the zip code where the Christian life is lived. In the tension between settling and sojourning. And so that may be an ache that you feel very deeply this morning. And if it is, there's good news for you here. So how does God's word here, how does it whet our appetites for home? And even better, how does it whet our appetites for the one who will bring us there, for the one who's preparing that home for us? Let's read and find out. This is God's word beginning in chapter 46, verse 28. Long passage. Hold on. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot, and he went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, and he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and he told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and their herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know of any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh again and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house, and when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, "'Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes, for our money is gone?' And Joseph answered, "'Give your livestock.'" 
and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of our livestock are my Lord's, and there's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with all our land will be servants to Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields, and because the famine was severe on them, the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests did he not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord. We will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus, Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob and the years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, "'If now I have found favor in your sight,' Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their dwelling place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you please now, in this moment, give us eyes to see by your Spirit, give us ears to hear by your Spirit. Would you make much of Jesus in our hearts? And we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name, amen. We're going to approach this passage under two headings, two points, two simple points, okay? Settling and sojourning. The first point, settling, is going to cover almost all of what we just read. Um, and then the, the second point, sojourning, is going to cover just the last three verses. And hopefully our time spent on each point won't be as lopsided as you think that's going to be. So settling and sojourning. First of all, settling. Like I mentioned earlier, if the story of Joseph were a plane, this is where the plane finally, after after 10 long, stressful, emotional, painful, tension-filled chapters, this plane finally comes down for a landing. Finally, the, um, the tension is resolved and the storylines come to a close. And we finally learn what happens to Israel and what happens to Egypt. And here's how the plane lands. Here's how the author brings, brings it down to a landing. We could sum it all up by saying this, that Israel is settled and Egypt is saved. 
And both of those things happen through Jacob, I mean, through, through Joseph. Joseph settles Israel in the land, and he saves Egypt. Now, let's focus, first of all, on how Joseph settles the people of Israel. It's pretty brilliant, and it's pretty hilarious. Remember, Jacob brings his whole family up out of Egypt, and it's 70 persons in all, 70 people who don't speak the language, they don't have jobs. What do you do? This, this is a logistical nightmare, really, for a, a family of 70 nomadic people coming up out of Canaan to try to find a place in Egypt. What do you do with them all? Um, well, starting in verse 31, Joseph, Joseph basically tells to his brothers, look, Pharaoh loves my job. He loves what I do for a living because I basically do his job. I make it easy on him. He loves what I do for a living, but he's going to hate what you do for a living. He's going to hate your jobs, your, sh- your shepherds. And in verse 34, we're told that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Apparently, shepherds back then, even as they were going into New Testament times, they were, they were nobodies. They were despised. They were socially inferior. They were distrusted. Even in, even in Egyptian art back then, the shepherds are depicted as, as crippled and dirty and repulsive. <laughs> so shepherds were nobodies. Joseph is basically saying to his brothers, look, just be honest. When Pharaoh asks what your occupation is, just tell the truth, and I promise it's going to play into our favor. Because you see, Joseph knows. He knows that because his brothers are connected to him, that Pharaoh is going to keep them close. He's going to let them stay. But because, because of what his brothers do for a living, he's not going to let them stay too close. He's, not going to, he's, he's going to want to keep them at a distance. He's going to want to keep them separate and not mixed in with the rest of Egypt. And Joseph says, perfect. That's just what we want. He wants his family provided for and safe, but he doesn't want them absorbed into the culture of Egypt. He doesn't want their Hebrew identity bleached out. He wants them alive, but he doesn't want them assimilated. In other words, he wants them in Egypt, but he doesn't want them of Egypt. And it's interesting, isn't it? Joseph, um, he has to specifically tell his brothers, look, tell the truth. Just be honest. Almost like he knows that honesty is not his brother's crowning virtue. Like he knows they could try to play this in their favor, but he says, you just have to be honest here. Trust me. And so Joseph, it's brilliant. He negotiates the best possible deal that the Israelites could have expected. Look at verse 11. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land. (laughs) In a time that food was scarce and in a time that all the people of Egypt are trading in their land to stay alive, Joseph negotiates a deal where they get land and they get food. And it's the best land around. Isn't that incredible? So Joseph settles his family in Egypt. Six times we have in this passage that word to settle or to dwell. Um, God's people, they go from being nomads on the verge of extinction in Canaan to being shepherds who possess the best land on the borders of Egypt. They settle and they have possessions 
there. So that's the first part. We see Joseph settling Israel. But listen, that's not even Joseph's day job, is it? <laughs> that's, just, that's just a side job for Joseph. Joseph's day job is saving Egypt. Um, his real job is saving Egypt, and we see him doing that in chapter 47, verses 13 through 26. And these verses, they, they describe for us how Joseph centralizes power under Pharaoh in a way that he didn't have it before, but in a way that leads to life, in a way that leads to blessing. Um, in verse 13, the writer reminds us how desperate the situation is. There's no food anywhere. Literally, no food. But there's a ton of food in these grain bins that Joseph and the Pharaoh have been storing up together for the last seven years. The people have nothing, and Joseph has everything. And the people, they could buy food at first, but eventually they run out of money. And so it's this spiral downward. They then get to trade their livestock in for food, but then they run out of livestock too. And so finally in verse 19, they say, look, we've got nothing left to trade. We have no bargaining chips left. We've got nothing. Buy us. We'll trade ourselves. Buy us. You can, you, can, you can have the only asset that we own, ourselves and our land. And to that, Joseph says in verse 23, deal. And he says, behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now, it's, it's possible, it's very possible to view Joseph's actions here in a negative light. Like Joseph is some kind of capitalist pig that is just, you know, he's sticking it to the people when they're down. He's hitting them while they're down and he's patting Pharaoh's bank account at the expense of the people. It might look like that on the surface, but I want to invite you to look at it in a completely different light. That there's something different happening here. What he's doing is he's saving them. <laughs> Joseph is saving Egypt in a way that he does not have to do and in a way that he has to actually pay for. <laughs> Joseph is under no obligation to save the people here. There is no formalized kind of relationship between the king and the people yet. Um, Joseph has all the power. He's got all the power, and the people have literally nothing to bargain with. There's, there's no formalized relationship. There's no expectation that the Pharaoh has to come in and, and swoop in and meet these people's needs. Um, there was nothing to ensure the people's protection. If Pharaoh had wanted to just let them die, he could have. He could have sold the money for a, he could have sold the grain for a lot more money elsewhere. It would have been a lot easier and been a lot more profitable for Pharaoh, for Joseph, to turn his back on Egypt. Um, but instead, Joseph voluntarily enters into a formalized relationship with them of king and servant, of lord and vassal. And it's a relationship that guarantees that their lives are now Joseph's problem. He literally purchases them for Pharaoh. <laughs> they become his servants. And listen, it's, it's just not a fair trade at all, is it? I mean, what, does, what do the people get? The people get life and blessing and security and a future. What does Joseph get? He gets their needs. 
He gets their desperation. He gets their hunger. That's what Joseph gets. He gets their inability. And so if you, if you had asked the Egyptians back then what their only comfort in life and in death was, they would have answered that I'm not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Joseph. Because he saved them. He saves Egypt. And so here we have Israel settled and Egypt is saved, and both of them through Joseph, both of them through the wise, generous, life-giving rule of Joseph. That's the first point here. That's, that's how the plane lands and how the storylines get, get resolved. And you would think at this point the credits start to roll on the book of Genesis. Now, but I want to stop and I want to ask you something. What do you do with this? What do we do with this? I hope that you might be asking maybe the best question you can ask during a sermon or a Bible study, and that's, so what? So what? What does this have to do with me, with where I am, with what's coming at me this week, with what's behind me last week? So what? Are we just supposed to walk out of here clapping our hands and saying, yay, Joseph, he was a good guy, good job, and just go on living our lives? What does this have to do with us? Well, I want to suggest to you that the Bible here is whetting our appetite for a ruler like Joseph, but better, greater. A ruler who reigns with wisdom and generosity. A ruler who uses all of his power to advance the good of the people that he rules over. A ruler who brings life and blessing. A ruler who pushes back the darkness a ruler who takes on the problems and the needs of his people as his own, who purchases them for a price and says, now your problems are my problems. Doesn't this whet your appetite for a ruler like this? Don't you want to be in a kingdom like this? Don't you want to, be, don't you want to follow someone like this? Doesn't this whet your appetite for someone like this who who forgives and loves the people who hurt him most, who uses all of his power to bless the very people that made him suffer. Doesn't this whet your appetite for a ruler who can actually fix the world's problems? For someone who actually knows what to do, someone who can actually make wrong things right, Someone who can fix things. Someone who can actually end suffering and pain. Someone who can end misery and death. Don't you long for a ruler like that? Doesn't your heart ache for a ruler, for a king like that who, who knows how to fix the world's problems and who knows how to fix your problems? Does, don't, doesn't your heart ache for a king who, when you look at the brokenness out there and you look at the brokenness in here, he knows what to do with it? Do you see the shadow of Jesus here? Do you see the shadow of Jesus? Do you hear this story whispering his name? But more importantly, do you hear him whispering your name? This ruler whispering your name. 
inviting you to trust in his rule, inviting you to faith in him, inviting you to believe for the first time or for the 10 millionth time that he is actually working all things for your good. Doesn't your heart ache for the time that you will see the face of this king? (laughs) The way that Joseph settles Israel and saves Egypt points us to someone greater, to someone coming. That's the first point, settling. Our second point is sojourning. And I want to suggest to you that just as our first point, settling, pointed us to someone coming, that our second point, sojourning, points us Somewhere. Points us somewhere. So secondly, and lastly, sojourning. After Joseph has settled Israel and he's saved Egypt, all the major plot lines here in the story are resolved. And it it really does feel like the story is over and coming to a close. The plane is coming down for a landing and it's taxiing down the runway and it looks like the credits are rolling. Look with me again at chapter 47, verses 27 and 28, where we read, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of his life, the years of his life, were 147 years. And they lived happily ever after Close the book, end of story. That's the way the story should end, isn't it? I mean, if you're one of the Israelites, it's got to be what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm settled in Goshen. We have a land. We have a place. We have just landed in prime Egyptian real estate. This is pretty nice. We have possessions here. We've got a land. We've got future here. The schools are great here. Our kids and our grandkids can grow up here. And that might be exactly what they were thinking because the next few words are that they were fruitful and multiplied. You've got to be thinking that they're putting down roots. They've got to be thinking, finally, this is it. We've made it. Maybe this is how God is going to answer his promises to us. We're home. But then Jacob comes along in verses 29 through 31, and like I said earlier, he crawls into the cockpit of the plane that's just landed, and he throws down the throttle, and the plane takes back off again. Right when we hear the Israelites collectively sigh and say, we're home, Jacob comes back into the story, and he says, no, we're not. We're not home yet. This isn't it. In verses 29 through 31, Jacob, he's got one last request. This is his non-negotiable. He calls his son Joseph and he says, when I die, don't bury me here. Don't bury me here. When my body turns back into dust, don't let it turn into Egyptian dust. Take me back to the promised land. Joseph is adamant. He's saying, bury me in the place that one day we'll call home because this isn't it. We're not there yet. You know, it's tempting to think of the story of Joseph here at the end of Genesis as the climactic ending of the story. It's the end of the book of Genesis. 
Um, everything up to this point, you know, you can see is kind of leading up to the story of Joseph. But here we see that the, the story of Joseph, it's not the climactic ending at all that we thought it was. <laughs> Actually, it's just a preface. It's just an introduction to a much larger, bigger story. It's the story of God bringing his people home. And it's going to take the entire rest of the Bible for this larger, grander story to unfold. That's what the whole story of the Bible is about. God bringing his people home and the price he's got to pay to do it. And at every point along the way, he's got to stop us and remind us, you're not there yet. You're not home. This isn't it. Keep going. Keep sojourning. The Christian life has lived in this tension between settling and sojourning. This tension of living in between as a traveler, as a, as a pilgrim, as someone longing for home but not there yet. Hebrews 11, when it writes about the life of Abraham, it describes his life, but it also describes our lives. When the author writes, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak in this way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Seeking a homeland. Looking for home. And knowing that it's coming. Knowing that it's going to be better. Knowing that it's going to be greater knowing that it's going to be worth it and staking our very lives on his promise that it's going to be worth it. And listen, Jacob believed this. He believed this. And this helps us understand another hilarious little part of this story, the scene where he comes in and blesses Pharaoh. <laughs> Beginning in chapter 46, verse 7, we have the scene of Jacob walking into the palace of Joseph. And you can just see it. Here's the, the most powerful man on the planet sitting up on his throne. And here comes this old, decrepit, um, hobbling old man who has to be held up by his son. He's a, he's a, he's a sojourner. He's just come to the land because he was going to starve to death if he didn't. And he walks into Pharaoh's palace and goes completely off script. <laughs> Before Pharaoh can say anything to him, Joseph just, Joseph just goes off in blessing, blessing Pharaoh. Um, and he does it one more time before he, before he leaves. He just launches into blessing. The starving sojourner, blessing the king of the known world. What do you do with that? You, I can imagine Joseph kind of hearing that and being like, oh, dad, uh. Dad doing it again. Um, what do you do with this? Because blessings run downhill. The greater blesses the lesser. That's just the way that blessings go. But here we have Jacob twice blessing Pharaoh. Why? It was because Jacob was saying to Pharaoh, what I don't have yet is greater than what you have right now. What I don't have yet is greater than what you have right now. And that puts me in the position of blessing you. 
not the other way around. (laughs) What I've got coming to me is so much better than what you have right now. You can't bless me, but I can bless you. (laughs) Do you believe that? Do you believe that right now what you don't have yet is better than what you have now and what anybody else has right now? Do you believe that? Do you believe that that puts you in a position to bless the world around you, to live sacrificially and generously because what you don't have yet is so much better than what anybody has now? Do you believe that Jesus has gone to his Father's house to prepare a place for you, a home for you? Do you believe that he's returning to bring you there? Do you believe that the home that you don't have yet but that you were made for and it's being prepared for you, do you believe that it's worth all of the trials, all of the suffering, all of the pain of the sojourning? Do you believe that? Because this is where we live. This is the tension that we will live the rest of our lives in until Jesus returns. This tension between settling and sojourning. May Jesus give us the grace to keep our eyes on him. The one who has gone to prepare a home for you. So that one day your sojourning will be over. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you please keep our eyes on you. Keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him sojourned himself and endured the cross so that he could prepare a home for us. Oh Lord, may you fill our hearts and our imaginations with the reality of what we don't have yet so that you may change the way that we live, the way that we move, and the way that we have our being in this in-between that you call us to glorify you in now. Make it so, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.